Hello and welcome to the World of Intelligence, an open source intelligence podcast brought to you by the Jane's Intelligence Unit. For more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. Okay, I'm with Ben Strick today from BBC Africa Eye, and we're going to be talking about some of his recent uh, investigations, open source intelligence work that he's been doing. And I'll be talking a little bit also about some of the developments we've seen at Jane's over the past month. Um, One of the things I think that we've seen over the past few months is an increasing emphasis in a way on the intelligence part of open source intelligence. So we've been getting more interest from our customers, I would suggest, on how to do more with the information rather than actually trying to focus on collecting the information, which is an interesting development because I think in the past, open source intelligence has always been seen as just about going out and gathering all of the information and not enough attention has been paid to actually what can be done with it. So especially within the defense and security realm, open source intelligence has always been its own siloed discipline where uh, it's just about information collection. It's usually done by an information team that then passes it on to somebody else to analyze. And it's not really seen as something that you use to write up full-on intelligence reports. Whereas our perspective at Jane's is obviously different. We spend a lot of time analyzing the information, working out what it means, and actually drawing conclusions from it. And I think we're seeing now more of an emphasis on some of those skills, some of the critical thinking and analysis skills uh, that help you produce intelligence. So I can introduce now Ben Strick from BBC Africa Eye. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Ben, I wanted to just sort of kick off, obviously getting, I want to get your views on open source intelligence, et cetera, but how did you, how did you first get into it? So I started uh, really with open source intelligence before I even knew what the terms were and what the, what the actual subject was about. Uh, funnily enough, in law school, uh, when I did a lot of internships, in internships as, as, a, as a law graduate and law student, they often get you to look through client things. Uh, so they don't get you to do the legal work per se, but they get you to do the, the groundwork and they think, okay, you know, here's, here's a young person, you know, they're obviously literable in, uh, in Twitter, in Facebook and, and Google and things like that. So they get you to do client background. So, you know, if a client comes in, say a company or a slip and fall case or, uh, you know, child sex offender, for instance, and, and they talk about their details, you just do a quick overview, you know, build up a profile of what they're like on Facebook, what their interactions are like, anything that's in the public domain that you can just give to the law firm to say, okay, you know, here's an understanding of what they do. Obviously, didn't stick in law for too long and I joined the military. And I was actually a foot soldier in the military, part reservist, part full-time. So spent a lot of time in the jungles in Malaysia doing a lot of interesting urban operations and jungle warfare training campaigns with the Malaysian military. And I think a lot of that is also using a different aspect of intelligence because you would often get in, in a campaign, for instance, you would get a, uh, an intelligence briefing. We have an enemy here. These are their repeated you know, footprints. These are their patrol routes. And this is all through, you could probably say open source because someone has gone up, uh, you know, an intelligence monitor, for instance, has monitored and, and taken, you know, repeated footsteps of patrol routes, the type of weapons that they use, the uniforms that they're wearing, what their capacity is. So if you mix those two together, you've got civilian from the law atmosphere, you've got military from the enemy and combat atmosphere. Fusing those two together is what I took to Twitter. So I started up a Twitter account and I thought to myself, you know, how can we fuse these two to work in the public domain with media, with activists and groups like that to really fuse that form of 
open intelligence gathering, you know, monitoring, surveillance and analysis, as you say, which is, is one of the most important parts and critical thinking to help out not military or police groups, but more so just online activism groups. And it's funny because since I've been involved, I've seen a lot of uh, involvement from police with civilian groups as well. So you've got things like Europol's Track and Trace Project, Trace and Object Project, uh, which is about child sex offenders and, and photos and using that with Bellingcat, for instance, which, you know, we've been um, very heavy online, myself, you know, other open source analysts. Yeah, so this is this is really interesting. So, you, well, I guess it, it was a more closed world when you're in the military in terms of how you used information and intelligence to then thinking, actually, there's a lot more out there that I can use to just find out what's going on, understand situations, to get situational awareness and pass it on to other another audience, essentially. But have you found that in terms of the work that you've done, that there's a big sort of community online that you can connect to and, and help each other out and, and all sort of piece together bits of information, which is a very different way of approaching it probably from when you're in the military? And how how's that sort of transition contrast really between the two? Yeah, I mean, and, and as you said before, you know, there's there's the idea of siloing information, right, or siloing intelligence and, and just, you know, keeping it within those brackets of not sharing it. Whereas I think open source work should be collaborative in nature, you know, because you have, you can't be a subject matter expert of everything. But if you, if you fuse heads with different subject matter experts, whether one is a subject matter expert on, on Instagram, um, you know, and, and Python scripts with Instagram, one is a subject matter expert on incels and white supremacists, another one Islamic state and the use of telegram, you know, and you fuse all these together, I think you're so much stronger as a community rather than just siloing that information on your own. And it's that combination of expertise that's so critical, I think, especially now, because in the past, I think what we saw was that open source intelligence was really limited to just gathering general information uh, without any sort of real specialism to it. Whereas now it feels like you've got things that probably were considered separate disciplines before. So geospatial intelligence, uh, imagery intelligence coming together as part of open source intelligence and feeding into open source intelligence. So whereas before an an open source intelligence team in a government or military uh, organization could just be people who are researchers, generalists in a way, I think now increasingly they've got to have those specialist capabilities and I think that's where they're still struggling with the transition because they're all still in their separate silos. And, Mm. um, you know, we get people coming to us and on our training and saying, oh, can you, you guys do some really cool stuff at Jane's? Can you teach us how to do it? And I say, sort of, um, (laughs) not entirely because unless you've got the right setup with the right, you know, we've got a lot of experts here with, you know, their own interesting specialisms and we can draw upon those for particular projects. And so it is always collaborative and you need those specialist skills. So I think that's, that's dead on in terms of the way you've described that advantage that you've got in a way that you can connect to that broader community that's out there but also being that you're in journalism and you're able to have a more public profile have you got the an advantage in the sense of being able to sometimes also crowdsource information yeah absolutely and even just before the chat we were having before we started this podcast about how powerful twitter can be as a as a soapbox to stand on in the park and get your message above the yelling crowd that's there you can post a tweet and say, hey, you know, I'm looking for a call for help. Are there any arms experts out there? And because Twitter is such a, almost like an organic intelligence community on its own, it's that hive mind that works together, you know, and, and you get people, uh, I'm not going to name any names, but people can step forward. And their their whole Twitter account is based on weapons in Yemen or weapons in the Middle East or North Africa weapons trading. And, and 
you've got like arms experts that just, you know, trace weapons for a living on Twitter. You've got these, you know, these real niche subject matter experts. Do you then have the challenge, though, of verifying that information and sort of saying, okay, this is coming from one person on Twitter. Firstly, you've got to figure out, I guess, is it a real person mm-hmm. or is it a fake account? Is it some sort of misinformation, which I guess we're seeing increasing amounts of? Yeah. What do you do in terms of trying to verify that? You know, can you give us a bit of an insight into your process? I guess because uh, I already know them in the community, which is great. But for some people, you know, so there are some people that I can meet on Twitter that will just send me a photo. I'm like, well, you know, where did the photo come from? Like, could be, you know, I have to verify that, which means I have to go through a Yandex image reverse search or something like that, you know, and start following up that lead. And, it, and it's, you know, it's time out of the schedule, whereas they're the expert and I have to trust them. But for a lot of experts on Twitter, and especially in open source, the open source community on Twitter, it's the norm to provide links, you know, to say, hey, yeah, yeah, I've got this one. Um, you can see it's this sort of weapon. And, you know, they'll, they'll post a link to the manufacturer's site, for instance, for that scope on that rifle. And they'll post a link to the manufacturer's site. And you can see the, the points, you know, and they say it matches because you have these two reticles here, you have this curve here, and you have this serial number on the side. You know what I mean? And, and it's, it's a way that I could say to my dad, who knows nothing about rifles or scopes or anything like that, hey, here's a picture of this rifle that's from Afghanistan. And here's a picture of the manufacturer's website. Can you see the links of the serial number and the reticles and things like that? He's like, yeah, I can. And he's not a subject matter expert. Sure. You know what I mean? So, but I think it takes that, that SME status to know that in the first place. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, we still get a lot of people who, as soon as I say I'm from James, they're like, oh, you know, if they've been in the military especially, they're familiar with our recognition guides and things like that. So they've seen all of that. And then obviously the data is all now online for us and um, people use our data for all that kind of stuff. But it's great that, you know, as you said, you're able to use some of that to be able to tap into those specialists that are out there. I mean, you know, we do the same in terms of our expert contributors when we bring them in to help on projects. It would be great to get some background in terms of some of the big bigger investigations you've done in the last few years so i think the one that you know certainly when i met you recently you were giving us a briefing on was about the uh the incident in cameroon with the soldiers killing the civilians did you want to just give us a bit of insight on on that project and how it worked from sort of start to finish like how did you how did you get into looking into it and then how did you progress it? Because it was a really interesting investigation i think it's um it's a great example of what you can do with open source information yeah, um, so that I'll give you the start of the investigation. So there was a video that went viral online uh, in early July uh, last year. It was a shocking video of you know women and children being walked down a path by these guys in camouflage outfits and and you know a couple of typical weapons that you would see in sub-Saharan Africa and and one unique weapon which uh, I fired before, so I was able to sort of pick that one out quite quickly. And as soon as the video came out. The government in Cameroon, the Minister for Communication, basically just said, you know, it's complete fake news. Whatever you see on Twitter is is wrong. You know, it's not the weapons that we have. It's not the uniforms that we have. And I think this investigation in this video was quite important because it shows the level of passion that can be that can be founded using crowdsourcing efforts. And so there are a lot of people looking at this video in the open source community, and we all teamed together. None of us knew each other whatsoever. You know, there, there's some people that use sock puppets because they want to keep their identity hidden. Cool. Yeah. But we teamed together through Twitter DM. We basically cracked the investigation. So we found the where, 
we found the when. Um, that we're using uh, the mountains on you know th- um, Google's 3D view. So you know you tilt the map in Google Earth, you can see the mountains. So we match the ridge line, the kink in the road, uh, that all of the trees matched the satellite imagery. We're able to find the time using chronolocation methods. So narrowing down the satellite imagery using a shadow calculation. You know turning one of the guys into a sundial, um, and then we went into who. And we're able to do that by, and, and I assume what um, you know happens a lot here at Jane's is matching up the uniform, for instance, matching up the weapons that they were using, matching up the ranks that they said in the video, which they announced, you know, here's second class, insert nickname, you know, um, and we're able to find what base they came from. So we went to such forensic detail, but I think an interesting part of that is the fact that none of us knew each other, you know, that the seven or eight people that worked on this. And it was all via Twitter DM, which I think, again, shows the power of what open source and, and crowdsourcing online can really be. And that didn't happen overnight. I mean, that took several months to work through all of that information, yeah. piece it together. That was a very diligent sort of level of effort from everyone involved. Yeah, it, it took about three months in total for the investigation and for the BBC to take that um, and turn that into a video for because we obviously had to explain our results right, right. and if i sat you know if i sat and explained shadow calculations to a group of people the the normal demographic of bbc they'd probably be like oh, what are you even talking about you know <laughs> trigonometry and angle of sunlight and direction of sunlight and putting a putting a compass on google earth for instance and seeing you know what direction it's coming from but i think that's an important part that happened in that 3 month process that the bbc took that really complex forensic analysis, almost a military analysis, and really made it quite easy and understandable for the person with no experience in this. And that's such a big challenge. It's one of the things that's come up recently in the conversations I've been having with people where they've said, you know, increasingly, I think even within sort of government military organisations, some of the clients that we work with, they're saying that, you know, the old style written reports, briefings that they've used for, you know, however long, they're not dynamic enough in this environment to get across a message to an audience and they obviously are seeing some of the outputs now that you, you get on BBC and other uh, outlets in open source and the kind of things you can do with visualizations, videos, etc mm-hmm. helping communicate your findings in a more impactful way than just having somebody read through a, a long document and I think we're now increasingly getting asked, okay, how do you how do you communicate more effectively your findings from open source? Because, like you say, when you especially when you're drawing in information from so many different um, specialist areas, in a way, you know, your imagery, your geospatial intelligence, um, social media, how do you get an audience to understand all of that evidence? And mm-hmm. and yes, yeah, so that was a really uh, that's why I sort of wanted to ask about that because it was a great example of taking all of that research and then you know putting it together and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know what was the what was the outcome? I mean, in terms of the, re- the re- response you got? The response was absolutely huge to the video. And, and I think the most important thing that it did was it took it down to a human level of these are two women and children. Use that to explain the crisis happening around Boko Haram and how many refugees are coming out of Nigeria because this was a border village where people are being killed in Cameroon. Uh, it also went to explain a lot of the conflict that's happening in Cameroon the human rights abuses in Cameroon, all through the vehicle of this one video and these small human elements that, that everyone could identify with. And this is why it shot around to, you know, places like the US government. Um, there was a lot of funding pulled from the US government, from the EU Council, 
uh, out of Cameroon as well, specifically and, and directly because of the impact of, of videos like this. And I think that goes to an important part about these open source investigations. You know, I'd, I've written words, 5,000, 6,000 word reports where it's a structural analytical report, like, you know, what you guys would have done here. And it doesn't go as far as using, say, for instance, a human element. This is Tom. Tom is in the Hong Kong protests. This is what's happening to him right here. Rather than saying, hold the Hong Kong protests and police brutality, it's taking it down to that one single human element in the theatre of war that they're operating in or theatre of protests or conflict that they're operating in. And that makes it very easily understandable and identifiable for you know, important people. Well, it's interesting. And, and you, you touched on, I just wanted to go back to something you mentioned in, in your description of um, that case study, sock puppets. And I remember at the start of the year, I was listening to uh, the Ocean Curious podcast. Mm. Um, you know, those really, you know, great bunch of people uh, coming together to share ideas and thoughts on open source intelligence. And one of the things that they talked about was the necessity of having and maintaining sock puppet accounts to be able to do open source intelligence well. Um, so for anyone who's not familiar with the term, what we're talking about is essentially uh, fake accounts that you use on social media, which to varying degrees might look like real people or you might set it up so that it looks like a genuine person. And I think with some of the changes that we've seen this year with some of the social media platforms, they've made it harder to access information without using that type of account. And for OSINT specialists and researchers, uh, you kind of want to use those accounts in order to not sort of give away your research and investigation, I guess, in terms of, you know, you don't want to use your own account. Uh, to trip over somebody else's profile or look over it when you're you're doing that sort of research. How do you find, in terms of the work that you're doing, how, how important is that element? Because it's one of those areas that's the big difference between what some of our customers are able to do within the defense and security world um, and what, you know, maybe yourself in a different kind of role as a journalist is able to do. So how much do you rely on those kind of things? Look, um, I completely understand why people use sock accounts. I mean, especially for police, for instance, you know, to interact in the OSINT world, um, especially on Twitter. You know, you notice that there's so many uh, sock puppets and, 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 you know, people with little cute characters and muppets and things like that that are, you know, that, that are commenting and, and liking a lot of the posts and, and I'm interacting with. You meet up with them in real life and they say, hey, you know, I'm Kermit the Frog or so-and-so. Um, I think that's really important for them. For me, I made the choice to put my name behind everything. Uh, so everything I post, everything I look at, I use with uh, my own account. I did that for accountability purposes because I know that a lot of the people that I'm going up against often hide behind different aspects. Um, and for me, I wanted to be a, you know, um, I wanted to hold myself accountable so that we can reach a higher platform rather than a mysterious account posting about an Indonesian propaganda network. It's, you know, it's me I'm accountable. I will stand behind my answers. I'm not just going to post it from a throwaway account and then never access account. It's rather I'm putting my name behind this because I am sure and certain and 110% you know, driven behind what I've, what I've published here. But for anonymity purposes, you know, for instance, uh, I mean, the pen testers of the world and, and the, uh, the OSINT hacker types, you know, I, I, I think it is, you know, there's a lot of times when you should take off your shoes before you walk into the house, mm-hmm. so to say, so that you're not going to leave, uh, you know, and you're not going to leave any fingerprints behind. Um, you know, for instance, looking at someone's LinkedIn profile, you don't want to see that, you know, Benjamin Strick has viewed some guy in, in Russia, for instance, you know, who I might be following. 
because it might trip up his lead and he might start, you know, hiding things like closing down Facebook accounts, closing down websites and, you know, so I, I think it's important in that respect. But yeah, for, for things that I post and my interactions on Twitter, I try and put a name behind it. Interesting. I mean, that's great contrast because I think there's so many approaches to this. And one of the things that I, I come across a lot is that when we are talking to people about open source intelligence is that they have a different understanding sometimes of the same, what is essentially the same thing, but because they're in a different field. So maybe they are in cybersecurity or they're doing pen testing or they're doing OSINT for um, corporate investigations where they don't want to give away to somebody's, you know, on LinkedIn that they're looking at their profile. Um, so they have to be more cautious. They've got to, you know, have a, they have a different sort of risk management approach, I suppose. And it's because they're doing a different kind of OSINT but because that label is applied to all of it you know you sort of see a lot of advice and guidance out there people saying oh this is how you should do OSINT or this is something you need to do Um, this is how you set up your sock puppet accounts and all the rest of it and I think to some degree like you say in your in your role and in a lot of the research that we do at Jane's actually we don't need those accounts we can be more open we can say this is us you know this is Jane's this is who we are this is the kind of research we're doing and actually um you know, be more accountable in that sense. Um, so, yeah, it's really, really interesting for you say that. But, yeah, I mean, you, you do hit on a, on a really important aspect about privacy mm. as well, which is, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a bit of a fan of Edward Snowden's recent book, for instance, mm. and, and, you know, he says about privacy and about, you know, you're, you're, as soon as you sign up to a social media platform to interact with other people, you're not just interacting with people, you're providing so much data about yourself and... Yeah. You know, your, your interactions, the time zone you're in, your transactions, what your preferences are and things like that. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that's really important. But it's for privacy and OSINT, I think it's about protecting yourself mm-hmm. and not, you know, putting your family in danger, not putting your contacts in danger who might be in dangerous or difficult circumstances and areas. Um, so while I do say, you know, I like to put my name behind everything, sometimes we take different measures to protect our sources and protect cases because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm from Africa. I, mm. the sources that I'm working with are not in Western countries. You know, these are dictatorship-based countries with huge human rights abuses. Um, you know, for Sudan, for instance, you know, where the government is very, very capable of, you know, throwing a bag over someone's head, taking them in a truck and taking them out in the middle of the night just because they've identified that they've been a protester. So for them to save, you know... Benjamin Strick from the BBC and their phone as, you know, from WhatsApp is, I tell them not to, you know, save me as, as someone else. Um, you know, so I think that's where our privacy comes in is to protect those people and ourselves. Uh, and it's so, so important. So you, you still have a sort of a quite structured risk management approach in terms of the advice you would give to, say, sources? Yeah, everything. You know, when sources reach out to us through Facebook and Twitter, we accelerate at a very rapid knot to go to Signal. Um, you know, things like that, yeah. Proton Mail, different Gmail accounts with Purple Monkey 24 names and things like that. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that stuff is so important. Yeah, just for anyone who's listening, and if you're not aware of these um, applications, so Signal is a secure messaging application, similar in a sense to WhatsApp, but just more with a high level of encryption and, and better security features. Um, Proton Mail, likewise, e- you know, email that you can use, which is much more secure. Uh, encrypt your emails, etc. Well. The Tor browser, uh, yeah, very good for sort of um, maintaining some of your anonymity online and, and you know, uh, limiting what you give away to anybody who might be observing. 
Um, yeah, so these are these are all tools I think that play a part in any kind of open source intelligence. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to see here the difference in your approach. Um, you mentioned just a, a minute ago about your investigation into Indonesian propaganda as well. I've been following this on Twitter because this has been really interesting. You, you've been posting uh, some great threads on on your investigation. And so I just wanted to maybe get you to talk through some of that and how it started and, and where you've got to with the, the investigation up to now. Yeah, the, uh, the investigation was actually really interesting to do. Um, so I'm not too familiar with, with what was happening in West Papua uh, before I started looking at this, you know. It's, and, and I think that's something about um, case studies for open source people. You know, you can, you can attend a five-day workshop or you can attend 20 days of workshops and learn cool open source tools. But I think the best way to do it is to get passionate about one single issue and use the tools applicable to that investigation to find out. So I did that for West Papua and, you know, I was doing some video verifications, some satellite imagery, and I noticed while I was trawling through Twitter and Facebook and Instagram how many hashtags were being uploaded about such a, it's not a small issue, but not a, not a hugely international issue. Um, you know, and there, there were some really weird hashtags like uh, West Papua Genocide, and these were tourism adverts you know, like tourism-based videos or, or, or pro-Indonesian government content about how great the uh, the school education system is since, you know, Indonesian government stepped in using the hashtag West Papua Genocide. So I scraped all these using a really cool tool uh, that's a Python script called Twint, Twitter Intelligence. So I don't know if you have to explain... <laughs> the, so the basis of no maybe we should just skip the whole tool talk it's, uh, <laughs> I mean yeah tw- Twint is an interesting tool um, you know certainly uh, for anyone who's, who is listening is interested in tools we get so we get asked all the time about tools mm. um, so just to sort of take a little bit of a diversion onto tools <laughs> uh, one of the things that comes up every time in our training and more generally in inquiries is right what, what tools are you going to show us what tools can we use what tools are cool uh, what tools are cool <laughs> exactly yeah what are the new ones what, what, what can we what can we start using and um, I always sort of say to people, right, take a step back. Let's think about your actual overall process. What's your workflow? What are you actually trying to achieve here? Because um, it's not just about the tools. Um, they, are, they can be very helpful at times. Uh, at times, you know, they don't always work um, for the, the case that you're working on or whatever. And so we've always taken a very tools agnostic approach at Jane's in terms of how we train people to do open source intelligence. And we try and teach them an overall method um, that, that you can then plug tools into where you need to. And, uh, you know, that's sort of stood the test of time, really, because if you try and base your training around specific tools and they suddenly disappear, which we've seen more of this year as well, especially with some of the Facebook tools, graph search tools and things like that, that, you know, Facebook's cut off access to. And, um, yeah, you can't become dependent on those and you've got to have a way of working that is independent of, of the tools. And so it's always one of those things I guess uh, the question so many times and I always say that, and people will say to us that we'll go through the training with them and then they'll say right when are we going to get on to the more advanced stuff when are you going to show us the cool tools mm. and, yeah it doesn't quite work like that but yeah I mean um, we do keep an eye on them we do try and sort of incorporate them where we can because sometimes they do give you that little bit of a boost don't they to be able to grab yeah. more information yeah. or data than you could otherwise manually so Twint is as you mentioned one that's come up fairly recently it's been around for a while. It's, it was made by Francesco Poldi, um, so who is very, very contactable. You know, if there's any updates you need or or any edits made. Um, and I mean, uh, when I, whenever I do workshops or whenever I teach, you know, open source, I always like to say to people the best tool is Google, yeah. uh, because I literally typed into Google how to work with big data from Twitter, <laughs> and I ended up on 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 a, on a the, I think the second recommendation after an ad was. Um, 
the Null Bytes blog, which is uh, just a random blog. And now I follow this this person on Twitter, and and it was just saying, you know, how to work with big data on Twitter. Use a tool called Twint. Here's how you do it. And and I think that's the most important thing about open source is you have a problem, just type something into Google, just like, hey, how do I do this? Hey, how do I do that? Yeah. And it takes it to you. And and I've never used Twint before. Um, but now I'm using it, it for everything. Yeah, I mean it's it, I it it's such a simple command line tool, mm. um, you know. And I think the more familiarity you get with it, the more you realise how much power there is. So, for instance, I can have a look at the the building that we're in right now, okay. take the coordinates from Google Maps, plug them into Twint, and say I want to scrape every tweet that was uploaded in the past two years within ten meters of this building, and and then I can pull that into a CSV sheet. And then the cool thing is, and I did something similar using the hashtags of the uh, the West Papua case, and you can put them into a visualization because it's a comma separated value sheet. So all you have to all you have to do is separate your columns. So you have a source and you have a target for your nodes and your edges, and you can map it out in something like Gephi or graphics or anything like that. For anyone who's listening who's not familiar with those tools, um, and, and those are really for social network analysis. So you mentioned nodes and edges. That's what you would use when you're, you're conducting social network analysis to figure out who's involved in a particular issue or who's part of a network and to what extent they're central to that network or on the edge of the network. And Gephi is a visualization tool. You know, We've used that before in some of our research on social media. It's a very handy, free tool that you can use to visualize your data. Um, so you and, and you made great use of that on this case. Um, I yeah. saw some of your visualizations you produced. I mean, yeah, going back to you know teaching open source and tools, I taught myself a little bit about network analysis theory. Yeah. You know how networks should look like from Facebook scrapes that have been done in the past and Twitter scrapes and you know social media networks. So I mean, this is an interesting thing because social network analysis is a huge area of it's sort of social science. Own, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and. And we've had people come to us before and ask us, when we do social media research, can you teach us how to use it to do social network analysis? And when we have tried it, and we've tested it out for ourselves, and we've done a few case studies, we've done some research, and what I found is that it's really difficult with social media because the underlying data can have so many gaps in it Mm. that it's hard to be... I mean, what you're mapping really is just the social media activity, and Mm. I think sometimes people read too much into it, and they're sort of like ah, that's that person's entire social network. And you have to say to them, actually, no, because they could have all kinds of contact offline or on other platforms that we're not seeing. So this is only a, a part of the picture when you're looking at doing social media, social network analysis, as it were. Yeah. But you've, you managed to get some useful results, I guess. I mean, as you said, like with, for instance, with open source, you know, you, you find something. But for open source, it's really about, you know, you're standing at a rock show. And you need to turn down the volume to identify what instrument is there and who's playing it right. Wow. And I think that's something that Gephi helped me with for this because there's so many hashtags that were used by these bot accounts from about West Papua. Yeah. Yeah. And so Gephi sort of alluded me to this small network of accounts operating in an irregular way. But that wasn't the final step. You know, it's, it's then going into those individual accounts, doing image reverse searches, having a look at all of the tweets that they're doing, having a look at how they operate, scraping all of those followers and Twitter users because it didn't pick up all the bots. So follow, you know, having a look at all the people that they follow, all the people that follow them, having a look at how they interact and then going further and having a look at the websites that they link to, the Facebook pages that are there, 
the advertising that the Facebook pages are doing, targeting the Netherlands, targeting the UK with you know pro-Indonesian content about West Papua. So still using the West Papua genocide tag, but using Facebook ads to basically advertise these propaganda videos. And it's it's just going a step further. And I always say in open source, it's about pivoting on information. Stop, reassess your intelligence. Where can I go to from there? Pivot, pivot, pivot. And with that kind of investigation, is it difficult to keep track of where you're going? Where, like you say, you pivot and you pivot again, and you pivot again. Is it easy to get lost? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I mean, it's this is something you know. So I I teach arms tracing in in ten day boot camps, and people say, oh, there's so many leads to follow. You know, there's so many rabbit holes. But I think it's that constant self assessment of saying, okay. Let's prioritize, you know, what's our most important lead? What leads do we have? What lead is possible to get more valid and, and prioritized information or intelligence? And what, what are we actually looking for at the end of the day? You know, we might have, you know, Russian government links, Chinese government links or anything like that. But at the end of the day, we really want to focus on this individual because that's our likely, you know, vehicle to tell the story. Um, so, you know, I, I could probably find 20 different bot networks about Indonesia and they're being used in Indonesia at the moment, you know, for the, the protests with students that are being shot. Um, but we are identifying the West Papuan propaganda network because this is our vehicle to say there are propaganda networks operating in Indonesia. So in terms of that, just sort of contextualising that investigation, is that still an ongoing investigation or are you, are you still pursuing that in terms of tracking those hashtags and accounts that are involved in that kind of propaganda activity? Uh, we are constantly monitoring this situation. Yeah, okay. And uh, in, ter- in terms of the way you sort of describe that, you know, one of the things we always teach people is um, make sure you start off with a, a structured plan so that you, you're able to bring yourself back from those rabbit holes and come back to a central aim, which is exactly what you've described there. I guess in, in your context, also, you, as you said, you're looking at an individual to help you tell the story ultimately. And um, for us, we always say to people, look, give yourself a question to answer. Mm. You know, don't just start off with a very generic topic because that's how you're going to end up get, getting lost mm. in the mass of open source information that's out there. For for me, originally, it was just OSINT coverage on West Papua because I noticed no one was looking at it, you know, and, and, and there was no, you know, the internet had been cut off as well for West Papua. As soon as that happens, you know something's going on, right? Like, why would the internet be cut off? But for me... Um, I did this as a hobby, so this wasn't anything to do with work whatsoever. This was just a, a personal mission uh, assessment. But uh, when I started finding the propaganda network on Twitter, just in that original view of hashtags and videos and things like that, I really thought to myself, okay, let's let's follow Alice and let's see how far the rabbit hole goes. And that's sort of how I did that Twitter thread as well, is that you know we've we've stumbled across another route in the rabbit hole. You know, we've just gone further and further down this rabbit hole and it's going further as well. Like it's, it's you know, developing into a bigger case, whereas I thought initially no, this is just something small. Uh, so that was, that was the interesting thing about it. And I think that's the, that's the nature of OSINT and that's what I try and teach people all the time. Lesson one, curiosity. Find out how far the rabbit hole goes. Curiosity, biggest quality, I would say, of a, an OSINT analyst. That's fantastic. That's, that's been really interesting chatting, Ben. Um, I think we're probably up against time, so I'll uh, draw things to a close. But thanks for coming in again and chatting to us because that was uh, superb to get some of your takes on how you've conducted some of your OSINT investigations. Just as a last sort of 
note before we end any thoughts on where you see open source intelligence generally going next you know given we've seen some difficulties in accessing some of the social media platforms this year and have you found any big challenges in trying to get into certain you know, types of information um do you want the truth or do you want a nice answer? <laughs> um, yeah, nice answer would be, yeah, open source future is great. <laughs> um, the truth is that I think we're moving away from tools. There are more lockouts happening. You know, Facebook Graph died recently. Um, you know, and that there's more tools that are being cut out. You know, governments are able to apply to YouTube to say, hey, you know, let's, let's cut this video out. They're able to limit satellite coverage, for instance, you know, to apply for an injunction. I think tools are almost becoming, in the future, at the rate we're going, I think tools are becoming quite irrelevant. I think we're moving towards a more imagery analysis, detecting deep fakes, detecting where images have been distorted, manipulated, and using that real forensic analysis of just anything we can get our hands on. I think that's the direction that open source is going. But again, I like the tools. They help get more information. And so I'd like to keep that. (laughs) Definitely. I mean, that chimes a lot with what we've been seeing. Um, You know, we've been talking recently, well, since the start of this year, about are we coming to the end of a golden age of open source intelligence? You know, we've had the last 10 years where we've seen the rise of social media, availability of other types of information increasing, and it's now starting to just sort of tail off a bit. And so it really chimes, I think, with what we're also seeing. So that's that's quite an interesting uh, addition to that. Um, perspective so yeah thanks thanks Ben Um, thanks for joining us for the podcast and um, we'll no doubt stay in touch and keep watching as your uh, investigations progress on Twitter thank you for having me here no worries thanks very much please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred podcast listening platform and for more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training